everyone. Welcome. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We're always very grateful for you, our audience. So thank you for taking the time to listen in. This is our 41st episode, and we've covered a lot of different topics. If you haven't yet, I'd encourage you to take a look at some of our previous episodes and give them a listen. And if there's something helpful to you, please share it. Now, I'm very excited about our next two episodes because we have a special guest, Pastor Josh Nip, a local pastor here in Bloomington. We're talking about counseling in these next two episodes. It's going to be good. Aside from Pastor Josh, I have Pastors Tim Bailey and Max Carell with me. My name is Pastor Lucas Weeks, and this is the Out of Our Minds Podcast. Well, gentlemen, it's good to be with you again today. Hi, how you doing, Tim? Very good, Lucas. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. For a rainy day. For a rainy day. It is nasty out there. Yeah. Uh, Max, how you doing? I'm well, thank you, Lucas. How are you? I'm, I'm doing good. It's nice to have you today. And good today to we have a special guest with us, uh, Pastor Josh Nip. He is the senior pastor at Bloomington Bible Church. How are you doing today, Josh? I'm good, Lucas. It's good to be with you guys today. Yeah, welcome. We're Happy del- to have him. <laughs> delighted to have you. So today we are going to talk about counseling, and the goal, our goal, is going to be to demystify it. (laughs) So we've got some work to do, because I've got, for myself, a lot of demystifying that needs to happen. Josh is very uh, self-deprecating when it comes to his credentials in this particular topic. But I'm going to start with you, Josh. What is, we've asked him to be on the show today because he does have some background in counseling. So what is your background in counseling? Yeah. Well, it's a, it's an interesting story actually, because when I, when I was in, when I was in college, I had only been a Christian for a couple of years yeah. and was dealing with grief. I had lost my father a couple of years prior when I was 16, getting ready to turn 17. And I went to, I was depressed Uh, Mm -hmm. my sophomore year in college, I went to see a psychologist and she didn't do a lot to help me other than she was just a sounding board to talk to. Um, One thing she did tell me was that I was using Mountain Dew to uh, (laughs) (laughs) self-medicate. You and Taylor. (laughs) Every man your age. (laughs) What kind of psychologist? I mean, how did you get connected to this? Uh, Just just kind of your average clinical psychologist. My connection to this particular practice was I had a relative who worked in the office there. Otherwise, there wasn't much connection. And, um, you know, so... I was trying to figure out how to handle life as a young Christian living in a bit of a vacuum. And I went to see this psychologist and really kind of figured out things that actually were just biblical things like, hey, you probably need to get plugged into a good church. You need to build some relationships and need to grow up as a man. So other than that, there wasn't really a lot of help for uh, things like my depression. And so it was a, within a couple of years that I started dating my wife and um, we visited another church that had a biblical counseling ministry and my wife's, my now wife's particular struggles. Uh, Did you have another one before then? <laughs> what, <laughs> what, did I, what did I say? She, no, before she, I was dating her and she was my fiance, my wife at that time at this point. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm following. All right, yeah, all right. yeah, yeah. Um, so... 
my wife's particular struggles with life enslaving fear led us to get some help um, mm. from the counseling ministry of and the church. Yeah, at the church. And that was the beginning of the process of understanding um, a bit more about counseling, how it actually can help us, and mm-hmm. in particular, biblical, biblical counseling and how and it can help us. And can I add, us. your wife has interviewed, both of you are interviewed on another podcast with Warhorn. Yes. Do you remember the title of that? I don't know. It was on so Monumental. We'll, we'll put it on a link. Yeah, okay. this podcast. Yeah, that's a good idea. When my wife and I began, she was my fiance then, we began counseling for her life enslaving fear. I became a part of that. And then we went through six, six months of pre-marriage counseling. Hmm. And a lot of it was to do with her fear. But at the same time, we were actually going through uh, pre-marriage counseling. I was, always, I was also going through a counseling training program. Uh, for biblical counseling, where I would sit and listen to teaching for several hours and then sit in on counseling sessions. Hmm. And so I did that the same summer that we were also in pre-marriage counseling, preparing to get married. And, you know, that's 20 years ago now. (laughs) And uh, so a short time ago. And from that point forward, um, that was when, you know, the call to ministry was happening and I was preparing for seminary. And then when I was in seminary, I did additional counseling training and study and counseling, um, you know, and eventually pursued some counseling certification. And then from there, it became my work as a pastor. Mm Mm-hmm. Counseling certification. What does what does that mean? Who who are you certified with? By yeah. Well, I have been certified by the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. Okay. Um, for the last, I don't know, ten or twelve years. Okay. But I've actually resigned that membership more huh. recently. So, okay. Among conservative uh, Christians today in America. It sort of owns the territory if you're looking to be certified and to be a part of a group that takes counseling seriously. So, Tim, what is your background in counseling? Well, when I got married, I got I went psycho. Okay. I mean, not because of marriage, but we moved to Madison and a friend moved up there. Yeah. As a professor I'd had at Northern Illinois University. It was black. And we were quite close. So when he moved to Madison, we actually helped him get his job. It had been a job I offered. It was actually being the custodian for the Frank Lloyd Wright built church, the Unitarian church. Mm-hmm. And you got a beautiful house out of it in the nicest neighborhood in the community. But as we spent time with them, I got very depressed because uh, <laughs> his goal in life was to be the first Nobel Literature Prize winner in America who wasn't an alcoholic. And let's just say he was failing at both sides of the equation. (laughs) He was just, he was a non-vet. He was very, very depressed. Hmm. Uh, Very good writer. Uh, Very intelligent, very personable. And I just wanted in the worst way for God to change his life. Hmm. And God wouldn't do what I was telling him to do, Hmm. if I may put it that way. And then one time I noticed that she had a bruise 
And I asked her why, and she told me it was because he had beaten her. Hmm. He had gotten his master's at the University of Chicago. So he was a sophisticated man, and he was really black. He wasn't like Obama. Anyhow, I got so depressed about his life that I found a counselor who specialized in children of ministers (laughs) and started going to him with Mary Lay. And I can remember the first or second session I was crying, and I looked at him, and I said, this is so disgusting. I am giving you money. I'm paying you so I can come in and have a friend and cry. And he laughed, and I laughed, and we kept working. It kept going on. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So there was that, and it was very, very helpful to me, and I don't believe he was even a believer, Hmm. but it was extremely helpful to me. Hmm. Um, it only took a couple of sessions and what it consisted of was him telling me, you are not the savior. Hmm. God is, and that's what I needed to hear. That's what I needed to be told. Then when, when we graduated from UW-Madison, we moved out to Boulder, Colorado and went to first press there. And my job that year was working with Gene Allen, who was the first associate. It was a very large church and we set up a lay counseling program there. Hmm. So for a year, we had intensive classes. I want to say three hours, one night every week. And at the end of the time, uh, I worked to put together an office that they could work out of a receptionist, desks, schedules, stuff like that. And we probably had about 20 people in the class. Most of them were women. Hmm. And they began counseling in the church, lay counseling. And it's interesting, a couple of years later when I was at seminary, they did an analysis of the success of their counseling and found that if you compared, they used some questionnaire or something, and if you compared the results that they got versus uh, professional psychologists and psychiatrists, that they had every bit as good metrics as professionals did. Mm. So that was a really... um, telling moment in my life Hmm. because i had a suspicion that counseling was actually love and wisdom (laughs) you Hmm. know as i read scripture it just seems so obvious that what people needed was counsel Hmm. not therapy not you know, opening up their heart and showing you their scars Hmm. even though that's a part of counseling then, uh, I guess I would say from that point on, yeah, I took counseling in seminary. Uh, I took a uh, seminar from Larry Crabb, and I liked Larry a lot, um, but I didn't really like his schema because mm. it just seemed so – it seemed to me that Larry was like Dobson and, and Doug Wilson, all of whom I have naturally appreciated – for one reason only (laughs) this is really funny (laughs) and it is that all three of them it's so obvious that they have a health that comes from having a godly father Hmm. i mean i don't have anything else to say about it other than those three men their love for their father and them passing on their love for their father is a part of their ministry and larry crabb was like that dobson wilson they're all like that Hmm. So anyhow, Larry Crabb was very helpful in his seminar. Um, and I still teach some one of the things particularly that he taught that's so helpful. But his books were artificial. It was like you do, you know, it was like 
It was like, what's his face? Jay Adams. Formulaic. Yeah. It was like, it, it felt like Gnosticism, Mm -hmm. you know, it felt like a secret handshake Mm -hmm. that if you were his disciple, you would shake hands the way he did. And then I don't know how to put it. I've never talked about it before, but go ahead. It was, it was mystifying. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Mystifying. Right. What about you, Max? Do you have a, any story to tell about counseling? Well, yeah, I, I, I said to you earlier, I took a psychology class as an <laughs> undergraduate. <laughs> you didn't tell him you were a psych major, did you? Oh, did I missed that. Yeah. I, I, so I, can I interrupt you yeah, for a yeah, second, sure. Max? So Please. the reason I was a psychology major is because I started out as an engineering major. <laughs> That's quite a change. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, in that period where I got depressed and I dropped out of school for a year, it was actually right after September 11th happened. Um, I never went back to class and I, and I, and I dropped out of school for that year, kind of find my way and get my feet under me in life a little bit. Um, and in starting to consider pastoral ministry as a possibility, I had sensed God's call. I had been serving the Lord in, in a local church. It wasn't a great environment yet, but um, God, I, God was calling me to to serve Him in the ministry, and I started to just ask, "Well, what? I mean, is there anything I should study that mm. should be a help to that?" You know, and so uh, you know, I I wish I'd been there for you to ask me. Yeah, yeah. Well, I wish you had been too, because I didn't really have anyone at that point in I guess my life. It was at better all. than religious studies. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I took several of those classes too, but um, so I didn't have anybody wise to ask. Yeah, but whoever I did ask, you know, some family members or whatever, just said, "Well, if you're going to be a pastor." Sounds like they must have been women. Well, they were. Um, well, if you're going to be a pastor. You want to learn about people. Then you should learn some things about psychology. Right. So mm-hmm. you can help people. Yeah. And that really mm-hmm. was the extent of it. I also didn't know what else to study at that point. Um, I knew, Lord willing, I would be going to seminary at some point. Uh, mm. Although there were several years that that needed to transpire and, and et cetera. But that was why I ended up going and finishing actually at Purdue university with a psychology degree, Hmm. which was really useful um, because the first job I was able to land and secure out of uh, college was to drive a delivery truck at Lowe's delivering appliances. Nice. Nice. (laughs) Real psychology for that. Oh yeah, buddy. (laughs) Talking to those people that you're bringing that stuff into their house. (laughs) <laughs> and why you will not take away their use washing yeah. machine. <laughs> <laughs> well, Max, uh, I just want to point out that Max does a lot of the counseling at our church these days. Mm-hmm. He does a lot of counseling. Is that a recent phenomenon, Max? Has that been going on for a while now? Well, I wanted to say something about Tim's accounts. One, he seemed to be saying that he got thrown in by meeting somebody he needed to figure out how to help how to save yeah and i think that's been my life with learning Hmm. counseling as i have learned counseling is i've just been faced with situation after situation where i better swim or i'm not going to be able to help anybody else Hmm. right yeah Hmm. um another thing that tim brought up was fathers 
and it made me remember that when I when I went to college, they made Asbury College is where I attended college. When they when you went into the school, they gave you at that time a battery of tests. Mm-hmm. Did you guys get batteries of tests yeah, when you started Gordon school? Conwell. And I thought, what in the world are these tests for? Right. <laughs> so then one day, not long after I'd started, I got called into the dean of men's office. And maybe he wasn't the dean of men. I can't remember his exact title. But uh, it was all for him to be able to talk to me about my test. Huh. Apparently, they did this with everybody. <laughs> now, here's what he said. Now, listen, you can imagine, could you imagine these words coming from anyone at Indiana University after taking tests? Mm. This is what he said. He said, well, Mr. Carell, you must have had good parents. Wow. And that's all he said. Amazing. He didn't have any, there wasn't any attempt. There wasn't any attempt to undermine them (laughs) or tell me how poor they were or anything like that. It was just Mm -hmm. a simple affirmation of my upbringing. That is an incredible little vignette. And it's powerful when you think about Mm -hmm. what you said a few minutes ago, the idea of how important Mm -hmm. the role of a father is in somebody's life. It's just Mm -hmm. fascinating fascinating hmm. but mostly for me it's been sink or swim to help yeah. people on the job yeah talking yeah. to people love you know that reminds me that <clears throat> when i went to gordon conwell one of the first things that happened is they took all the matriculating students and put them in a an assembly hall and they gave us a battery if i remember correctly three separate psychological uh tools one was the theological student inventory I don't remember what the third one was, but the main one was uh, the MMPI, hmm. Multifaceted mm-hmm. Personality Inventory, and uh, it was it was a shock. <laughs> I don't know if any of you have ever taken it, but if you've taken it, you'll never forget it. The questions they ask you, oh my goodness! <laughs> I mean, seriously, it's Is it just like, that they're very personal. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, yeah. I would I would say beyond personal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I won't repeat on air yeah. one of the questions that will never leave anybody's brain <laughs> that's ever taken that test. Huh. It, it it opens up to you the degree to which some people are really sick. But the other thing I wanted to say was I was under care of Boulder Presbytery of the PCUSA, although at that time it was the UPCUSA. And one of the requirements was that you would have a session with a psychiatrist. And so they flew me from Boston to Denver and brought me, I, I guess he was Denver or Boulder, but for a day with a psychiatrist. And he had the apparatus. He had those tests and the results yeah. and everything. And I remember going, I've never met him. And I remember going into his office and sitting down. And the first thing he asked me was, he said to me, well, Tim, he said, uh, I've looked over your results. And he said, I, I want to ask you, are you homosexual? <laughs> <laughs> and I sat there and looked at him. And of course, in Boulder, I'd spent a significant amount of time working with people of various sexual deviancies because, you know, that's where they all go to Boulder or, or Southern California or Northern California. And, and But I was shocked that he asked me if I was gay. You yeah, know, that yeah. was the thing that shocked me. Yeah. And I looked at him and I said, no, I don't think so. Why? 
Now, this is the funny part of the story. He looked at me and he said, well, he said, your profile on the MMPI very closely matches the profile of a homosexual. And he said, but don't worry about it. We find that profile is, is a very good profile for a successful minister. <laughs> That's, that is a direct quote from 1982. The third sex. <laughs> yeah. So tell him. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. It's a even... French. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I know that. The, the French I... say this is a real old French quote. The French say there are three sexes: men, women, and clergymen. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and so at that point, I think you should say what Josh looks like. Oh well, what he, he's uh, I don't know how tall are you six. The guy Five on, or I'm a six six. Yeah, the guy six. on the brawny paper towel. <laughs> yeah, that's right. exactly what yeah. he looks like. Yeah. Yeah. He has a beard. He's happy. He's strong. Yep. And he loves to play frisbee golf. <laughs> and if you need a particular disc, send I'll him get an you email. Set up. He'll, He'll get, get you set, set up. up. That's exactly. So right. he's a real man. Yeah. Yep. Unlike me. Uh huh. <laughs> I'm a poser man. <laughs> Well, psychology and counseling is very much a part of our culture, right? When people, when you bring up those terms, people have an idea of what that means. Um, whether you're talking about Sigmund Freud and like the person on the couch, or you're talking about what about Bob, right? <laughs> With Richard Dreyfus being oh, sort my. of a proud, you know, arrogant, want to sell a <laughs> million books, talking about all these fancy things, you know, and charging $300 an hour or whatever. <laughs> that's the, that's the conception of a, of a counselor. And so you've got, you know, Freud and psychoanalysis um, but then there's also the, the medical component. We're, we're very scientific in our time right now, and we're very ma materialistic. And so um, there is a strong assumption, belief, push to sort of reduce everything, including thoughts and behaviors, uh, to, to physical realities. And so, you know, we treat uh, various mental problems with drugs. Um, and so... And and then there's the question of okay, uh, so so where do you start? You know, is it is it chemical imbalance? If if somebody has behavior that they want to get rid of, or that's bad for society or whatever, is it the result of chemical imbalances? And you try to do things to modify that. Are you simply modifying behavior, uh, which of course is another way to come at the problem. Uh, another another thing to consider is so. Do you are you supposed to just focus on the individual himself and on and, and make the individual himself the reference point and what he believes to be true as kind of the reference point? Um, there, there's there's all these thoughts and it is bewildering to people. It's very bewildering, right? Um, and so, what would you? So we're going to start today with a definition if you can boil it down, what would you say counseling is? What is it? Big picture. Yeah. If I was just going to say when it comes to the word counseling, regardless of what kind of counseling it might be. And, and, and we were laughing a little bit because before we started, Lucas pulled up on Wikipedia counseling and it lists like 15 or 20 different kinds of, of counseling. Yeah. The, the Wikipedia page for counseling is actually just a list. Yeah, of, of all the kinds of counseling. Different kinds of counseling, yeah. yeah. Well, 
some big common out a big commonality when it comes to counseling is we're talking about helping someone change. Okay. You know, I'm not giving any that's without qualifying what kind of change we're doing, but a lot of what counseling is is helping someone change in some way, shape, or form. Um and uh and and so if I had to big picture kind of boil it down, I would say it's an effort at helping someone change from one point to another. Okay. That's kind of interesting because I would not put it that way. And the reason is, if you think about people who have lost loved ones, do they need counsel? And the answer is, of course, yes, you're nodding your head. So then I would say to you, well, what kind of change do they need? Right. Haven't right. they just had the change? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, by change, one of the things I don't, I don't mean, I, I, I mean it maybe in the sense of, I'm encouraging the faint-hearted, so I'm mm. I'm changing them to give them strength. I'm helping the weak. I'm admonishing the unruly. So whatever the nature of the kind of thing is, um, there's some kind of thing happening that's... Yeah, but let's argue about this a little yeah, bit. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Isn't it true, though, that a huge number of times in our counseling sessions... What we really do is tell the person they're not crazy and that it makes sense they feel and think the way they feel and think. And they're suffering and, the way they are. And that it's not wrong. Yeah. And keep doing it. So in, in, in my argument back would be that would be the exact thing that I'm saying. So when I, I say so, help someone change, I'm starting in a really big picture category yeah, yeah, and going, right. yeah, I, I think one of the most common things I say to people is... So you're normal. <laughs> so you're normal. Yeah. I, I wonder if there isn't something, you remember the quote that psychology is the sworn enemy of guilt? Uh, yeah, that's Alan okay. Bloom in The Closing American Mind. Yeah, He's talking I, about the, I, wa I want to say yeah, this because it's so important. Yep. Remember, he was a gay philosopher at University of Chicago, died many years ago. And he wrote The Closing of the American Mind, which is the best book you can read about the closed-minded ignorance of higher education, both Christian and non-Christian today. Anyhow, he says in there that all of a sudden, after decades of teaching, he noticed all his students had empty eyes and that they were risk-averse. Hmm. And then he realized he now had a whole generation of students who had had parents who had divorced. Hmm. And he realized this absence of personhood of vigor and so then he says and what their parents did to pacify their own conscience they sent them to to counselors and the counselors were supposed to deny that the parents had failed the children and then he says psychology is the sworn enemy of guilt yes and the reason why i bring this up is i was thinking as lucas asked the question what is it i thought well at the bottom of it, isn't their agency. Either we're dealing with our agency that we have responsibility for, or we're dealing with someone else's agency that they, that they acted toward us in a certain way, or maybe we're just dealing with God's agency in, I, that, in that God's dispensations brought about something mm -hmm. that, that we have to deal with and that we might not be satisfied with and might just be very interruptive to our hearts and our lives in a way that we just don't know, whoa, 
Wow, suddenly. So Sigmund Freud, of course, well known to be at the very center of the modern concept, conception of psychology. And what you said about psychologists being the sworn enemy of guilt, I mean, that that's central to the project. <laughs> Dealing with the guilt. Like, this is... This is obvious to even pagans, Christians, like dealing with guilt is central to the whole project of modern psychology. And I, it's fascinating what you said, Max, because I, as I was thinking about it, uh, when I, and I hate counseling, real counseling, and I, I don't want to pigeonhole it by calling it Christian counseling or biblical counseling, because it's, it's I'm not, I don't want it to be a type of counseling. I just think that actual real counseling isn't about taking doesn't take its reference point from the individual it actually starts with god a fixed reference point outside of ourselves and in hebrews 4:13 it says and there is no creature hidden from his sight but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do that i just love that phrase it's amazing amazing it's amazing. And, and that, in my mind, is the starting point. Um, we do have to wrestle with our problems and our fears, and all of those things are true. But if you're, if you're missing the reference point of God with whom we have to do, everything is totally mixed up and screwy, which is, of course, where we find psychoanalysis and psych the modern psychology and, and of course your college psychology degree right it's just like there is no mooring anywhere <laughs> and of course we see that today with the transgender just total ridiculous i mean as we've said on this podcast before even pagans are looking at that and being like wait a second this is insane like we're we're being crazy here, but it's just the outworking of a totally total lack of any fixed point, and so or it is the prison of a completely fixed point uh -huh. of ideology. Okay, you see what I'm saying. In other words, they can't stop the train that mm. they have set in motion for the last fifty years, mm -hmm. and that train is is hell bent on saying no to God on the first distinction of every man and woman he's made, which is to give them their sex at the moment of conception. So if your commitment is to refuse to submit to God in that first distinction, mm -hmm. and our generations hate distinctions, any distinctions are anathema. Mm -hmm. And so they're on the train, they can't get off, and the law of unintended consequences, particularly with women's sports, Mm. is both tragic and hilarious. <laughs> okay, you're going to have to open that up a little bit. Well, it's tragic in that if a guy goes and stands in the center of railroad tracks with a train coming in Wheaton where they've removed all of the seams, so trains come on you mm. without any noise. It used to have clack, 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 okay. no okay. noise. Yep, yep. You're going to dive at that man and take him off the tracks mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because it will end his life. And it has many people. Yeah. But when it comes to somebody standing on the tracks of, you know, binding their breasts with, in women's sports, denying having sex with the same sex, um, having a gay aesthetic revoice, and then going further to having your genitals mutilated by a quack doctor who, who's doing it at 
Children's Hospital in Cincinnati. Right, right. And then you're taking hormones, you know, mm -hmm. and you're mm -hmm. upping your testosterone or lowering your testosterone level. Yeah. It is equivalent to standing between two tracks as a train comes and everybody looks and claps. Right. They're clapping. Yeah. Yeah. It's wonderful. Amazing. Wonderful. Splendid. Yeah. Splendid. <laughs> and a Supreme Court nominee says she doesn't know. <laughs> she doesn't know what a woman what a is. Woman is. Yeah. <laughs> and it's and and she's only saying it because of ideology yeah, yeah but she's also committed to the slaughter of the oh, unborn. Yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. let's always keep the slaughter of the unborn center when it comes to the supreme court <laughs> yeah i don't mind her being a transsexual as long as she wants to defend the unborn children hmm. i mean that's a joke but I, it's not a joke it's a i don't want to call it irony because then i'm gay <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um, can I can I say ahead. something in response to what you were saying? Look, yeah. I don't know whether it's Lloyd Jones or not. I kind of feel like it is, but whoever it was said that the most basic Christian understands hugely more about the human condition than any psychiatrist or psychologist because he starts from Jeremiah's statement, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? He starts from guilt. That's so right. So I wanted to to say yes to what you were saying. Mm -hmm. And it's so sad to look at Reformed pastors today who, more than anybody, we should understand the importance of original sin in the fall mm -hmm. and depravity. And it's so sad to see that they, too, are the sworn enemies of guilt. Mm -hmm. They do not believe in guilt being a catalytic converter for health and joy through the blood of Jesus. You know, they won't mm -hmm. preach the law. Mm -hmm. They will not trust that guilt before a holy God is the tutor, the schoolmaster to the gospel. And it's so sad. Mm -hmm. It's so sad. I know people are getting tired of hearing me say this, but if pastors would discover, that's what Edward said that the best way to bring a revival is to preach the fall. Mm. And so, yeah, it's guilt. Guilt is what people bring to us. When I was talking earlier about the death of a, of a loved one, what do people have after the death of a loved one? Inevitably, mm. they have a terrible sense of guilt. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was thinking this past week, I was talking to my wife, and we were talking about uh, Ben Shapiro and uh, who's that guy? the canadian uh don carson uh, jordan no jordan peterson, jordan peterson. Yeah. carson <laughs> ben shapiro and jordan peterson and i said we were talking about them and what they do and apparently they're doing something together and you know between the two of them they're doing bible studies or something i forget yeah, what yeah, yeah. and i said well sure i said uh they're they're willing to say what no pastor in this country is willing to say some kind of statement about responsibility they're willing to talk about responsibility in the individual. And so it's resonating with people. And their audience, I think, is, pr I, I, I don't know for sure, but oh, I would it's say bad. it's predominantly Christians. Oh. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm just telling you yeah. that they're people who would call themselves Christians and they're actually My believing. I, I, they're that. actually saying that they, that they are, they're saying things that they can't hear in the pulpit. Right, and so they have this huge clamor of somebody's somebody is actually representing me out there about truth, 
and about responsibility. And I don't, I think that the pulpits are quiet. Hmm. Well, now this is, and these men don't have anything to say. Yeah. Except for that, expo- that responsibility exists. They don't have a connection to owning God's truth. Well, the the ironic thing there is, um, you know, I, I've you guys know I've been on a kick about justification. I've talked with Tim a fair bit about it, um, but both of those men, you know, you think of uh, a practicing Jew and uh, Jordan Peterson, a psychologist have a conception of the law according to what they believe about it that they think is achievable. If real counseling, if real psychology begins with guilt, then it has to lead to the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Can I go back to the issue of losing a spouse? It's very common for people that lose a husband or wife to feel guilty about all the things they did before their spouse died right. that they, could, they wish they could take back. Yeah. And you can't take it back. You know, mm. the period, the full stop has been put on the sentence. They're gone. Mm-hmm. You can't take it back. And so that is a horrible thing. Uh, for us as Christians, it's a horrible thing because we sin. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no Christian who isn't going to have heavy regrets and sadness when their spouse dies. Nobody's going to put their spouse in the grave and say, well, at least on, you know, with this one, I have no regrets. They might say, I have no regret marrying him because he put up with me, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, and so what we have to realize is that it's not always the catharsis of being able to be convinced to change. Much of Christian counseling is the catharsis of taking the horror of our existence interpersonally before God and realizing that, yes, in fact, we do have much need of the blood of Jesus, much need. And that's what a counselor does. A counselor Mm. says, isn't it wonderful that God has given you this opportunity to just cry about your failure Mm. and then to realize how sweet God is to us, how kind. And that kindness leads us to repentance. You don't have the ability of producing fruit and keeping with repentance with your husband or wife. They're gone. And yet you can produce fruit in keeping with repentance with all the other people that you will live with before you yourself die. Hmm. And so we have to be very, very careful to not focus only on the counsel that is, well, if you do that, then this, and if you do that, then that, and God said you may not do this and that, which is, I'm sorry, but that's how I would view the majority of what is called biblical counseling. If a counselor cannot give you an equation, I always refer to Bill Gothard teaching child rearing for engineers. You put the coin here, it rolls through here, comes out here, and I promise it'll come out there if you put the coin in here, give it a little shove, don't let it just sit there, (laughs) you know? I always have this fear that biblical counseling is looking for a fix. And that's why when you said change, I'm like going. Ah. Well, I knew I knew that's what you were. I knew that's where you were going with it. It's not what I intended, um, yeah. but it is true, right? I mean, in a lot of biblical counseling circles historically, I mean, there's some things that are scary about how to help people. I've got. Uh, do you know? Do you know what he's talking about? I don't know what he's well, talking about. Uh, <laughs> 
What? No, I don't. Helping people is not scary. No, what trying I'm saying help, is trying to help people. What I'm saying is there's some ways counselors have went about counseling that is a bit oh. scary in it in its care for people because no, I don't know what you're talking it's about. it's I'm following your train of thought, which is take Romans eight twenty eight and apply it to mm. every problem that somebody has. Yeah, yeah. And here's here's three homework assignments mm. and come back next week and then it will be first Corinthians ten thirteen. Which is what? we're gonna meet in uh, no temptation is overtaken you except mm. such as is common to man. You know, God is faithful. Yeah. Um and then uh, uh, sort of applying that superficially. Yeah, okay. yeah, and, yeah. And, and in one hour, one you have one hour meetings, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and you have one hour meetings. If it's in a counseling center, it's because in large part, they get paid lots of money. I want to stay on the track that I'm on, but I mean, it could be. <laughs> hey, if we can talk yeah, about can money. Can I tell a story? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it could be, a, I mean, $130 an hour. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could I could start my own counseling practice in Bloomington and charge one hundred and thirty dollars an hour, and no one would blink an eye at it. Mm. Um, especially if I was able to get it set up to um, to use insurance. Actually, the truth is, if you don't mind me just saying real quick, that if you did that, people would go to you who wouldn't otherwise go to you because yeah, it because has the veneer of yeah, it's more professional, professional, just like the yep. just like the I'm the guy who's the expert who can fix it who can give you a few answers and send you out the door um, in one hour per week, regardless of what the issue is, it can always fit into that because we have somebody else who needs to come in the door behind us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And even if you're not charging the money, and even if it's just an engineerish approach in a mega church, we took a a young man once to confess to his family uh, molesting his sister. Mm. And her pastors were there the family's pastors were there and as we went through the 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 process of this young man making confession to his parents the sister wasn't in the room and the solution of the pastors at one point was well you know this is this is helpful this is good you know we have this class that's meeting and in in eight weeks we're going to be covering this little section here in eight weeks and here in the room were this mother and father, absolutely devastated, mm-hmm. a repenting young man, and two engineering pastors yeah. who were looking at how they were going to fix it all by processing them through the, the machine. I know. And it was horrific. I think that's what you were talking about, right? That no. idea of scary is what you were saying. Is well, that what you meant by scary? Included, but I think you're... I think you're thinking of specific things, not just the engineerish approach. I think you're actually saying that to use those scriptures in that way is harmful. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, is to to care for someone like that is awful. Just yes. like like what yeah, you're saying. It's, it's just it's an just awful a, way to handle a person. Why? Because well, that's so bad about it. Well, aren't they helped when they walk out the door? Tim no, brought up harmed. love and the, and the nature of love at the very beginning when we started. Mm-hmm. And they can tell there isn't any love in that. There is no care for them. There is can, nothing can I tell there a story? of love. So Stephen was on here before talking about counseling. I don't remember why, but he was talking about counseling. Yeah. yeah and Stephen brought up um, that Jay Adams' whole thing was set on competent to counsel. Okay, that that's the phrase. 
Well, as it happens, going through Romans this last week, I hit that text, all right? And the Greek word is nutheteo, and um, that is nuthetic counseling comes from that Greek word, okay? Mm -hmm. And nuthetic counseling is the secret handshake that biblical counselors use. So Max and I went out to counsel a family, an extended family this last week that was having some problems, okay? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so Sunday morning, I talked to both the father and his son. They're both adults. And um, in the service, I was talking about the Apostle Paul being out on the edge with the Romans because he knew he had, he knew that they were very proud and angry at him for having the audacity. You got to read Calvin's comments on this part of First Corinthians 15, I mean, of Romans 15. So anyhow, and so you get to this place where it says the Apostle Paul's complimenting them, you know, yep, they love yep. truth, they have a lot of understanding, knowledge. And then he says, and you're able to, and then you have this word, nuthateo, you're mm. able to, and it's translated in NASB, admonish. Okay, it's not translated counsel. It definitely has a pushy, as you would put it, a change aspect to it, mm -hmm. you know, exhortation, admonition, change, right? Now, here's what's funny. So, I spent a good bit of time when he says that you're able to admonish one another. I had been thinking that that means that people were willing to be admonished. And isn't it wonderful that the Roman church was? And then all of a sudden, I thought, no, it also means that there, no, no, I'm sorry. Originally, I had thought that it was talking about the fact that you are willing to admonish other people. Yeah. Because, of course, that's the thing any pastor grieves over, how few people in the church are willing to help other people. Yeah. And so, it's all dumped on you, you know? Right, right. And so, then I realized that, no, it's also saying that the people that are being admonished are willing to be admonished. You're able to admonish each other. All right. So afterwards, I'm talking to the father. Then I talk to the son separately, all right? Then I get this phone call very late at night, and I didn't see it until midnight, so I didn't call him until the next day. The next day, I call him, and what he had said to me the other the, the, the Sunday leaving the church was, he's, now this is after Max and I have gone out and visited and talked to him. He says, uh, Pastor, can I ask you, what is the difference between admonishing each other and harassing each other? <laughs> I just thought that was, so of course, late that night, he probably mentioned to his wife what I'd say, and she just probably slapped him a few times and uh, said, what? You're disrespecting the pastor. So he called me. I didn't mean to disrespect you. Uh, and I buddy, said, oh, my dude. goodness. <laughs> when you're counseling people as a pastor, you're always on the edge of irritating them, just yeah, like the yeah, Apostle yeah. Paul. He's been admonishing his whole letter, you know. He backs off. Oh, I think, actually, I think you're right. And if I've been, if I've been very bold with you, you have to, blah, 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 you know. So, what we have to realize is the distinction between harassing and being an endless critic of people and admonishing is love. And we as pastors, as older women in the church, elders, deacons, as mothers and fathers, we have to love. We have to love. It doesn't matter if you have wisdom. Hmm. If you don't have love, and I think maybe somebody wrote that somewhere. I'm not, not sure. Where it is, you know. 
Okay, so that's an so you're saying that you're you're, you're answering uh, Josh what Josh was saying, and I I was trying to push back on that because I'm thinking, well, okay, but aren't people helped even if I mean, okay, I'm not going to argue against love, right? I'm not going to argue against love. Try it, but but people walk in the door, they pay money, and they get some helpful thoughts, you know. Uh, ideas for change, ways to handle conflict. I mean, isn't that helpful? You say it's actually harmful without love, or would you qualify that somehow? Well, in the context of what we were talking about, we Mm -hmm. were talking about a megachurch machine Mm. where, you know, the pastors step in and get it, say whatever's supposed to be said because their chief desire is to move on to the next thing. Yeah. Um, expediently and efficiently. And people are left reeling in pain with no help in where God is at in this and of what good at all he would be to them. I'll just say one of the things I had to learn because I came from a one hour, you know, session where you had Mm -hmm. to be done in 55 minutes to make sure you kind of said your final greetings before someone walked out the door before someone else came in the door Mm -hmm. is I couldn't help people in that amount of time. Hmm. I just couldn't help anyone in that amount of time. Um, I could rush them. I could say things faster than they would understand them. Hmm. I would not give them direction that actually would really hit where they needed. Sometimes they just needed more companionship. Mm-hmm. And um, honestly, in a lot of a lot of counseling, that was probably the most helpful thing when I went to see the psychologist. Was right. oh, I finally have somebody to talk to about this for the first time in my life? I'm I'm a young man talking about myself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know. So former engineering student. Yeah, engineering student. Yes. You know. Um. So people need time, hmm. and the ministry to those people requires that you give appropriate time to care for them emotionally, to care for their, the spiritual need to sit with them and weep with them in their grief to, um, applying if, if there is some helpful exhortation or direction or wisdom to give that you can give that, Mm -hmm. but giving that without actually a a kind of bearing with the person Mm -hmm. is a bit like pharisaical ministry where you don't lift a finger to actually help a person. You just move them on. Hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, I went, I went to a counselor once and to sit down and talk and just kind of offload some stuff. And she was very nice and she listened to me for an hour and a half or so. Right. And I felt good about it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it wasn't because I didn't have a, a lack of lots of people who love me that I could, and I was going to people. I mean, Tim helped me in some of these situations many times and, and we would talk and, but it was interesting. We're complex. We're, we're weird. We're complex people. Mm. It was nice to be able to tell her because I could say it. And I knew she was just going to go home and eat pizza and not care. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I know Tim would go home and carry it, mm-hmm. which was helpful to me mm-hmm. that I had someone who loved me and who would go home and carry it. But it was also helpful in an, on an occasion for have somebody who I knew 
would just go home. They would listen and they'd say, hey, that's nice. Be filled and warm. I'm going to go eat pizza. And that's how perverse or complicated or whatever you want to say we are. We're just Uh, really, really complicated. It's strange what will be helpful to us from time to time. But for the most part, we must have people who love us. Absolutely must have people who love us. It's interesting. What occurs to me is that a lot of people would want the the one scenario but not the tim scenario and other and the reason they would want it is because they they don't want to be known right so if you're going to love somebody you're going to know them and this is a constant problem in churches people want to be anonymous um, but they still want their problems helped well I, i think they want false intimacy Okay. I don't think it's that they don't want to be known. I think it's that they want to be known on their own terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. They do not want a bilateral relationship. They want a unilateral relationship where they cast their spell, they spin their they life. They curate their own image. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And that's why it's so hard to be a pastor because inevitably we – our love is most needed at the point where their spin has yeah, sailed. Yeah. <laughs> we interrupt. Uh, we interrupt this narrative for a, a little bit of truth a, talk. I was talking to a man that's dying of brain cancer this last week on the phone, hmm. and I asked him what his thoughts were. He and I are very close, and we both have very tender love for each other. And, um, and I have several friends dying right now, actually. And he said, you know, the thing that really has hit me about this is change. Hmm. And isn't that often, you know, whether it's the change of a child leaving home, of your last child leaving home, empty nest, the change of having a baby, the change of getting married, uh, death, the great change, you know. These are places where people have no place to look other than a pastor. Mm -hmm. I pity people who do not have a shepherd when they go through those changes. I just pity them. There's a couple in our neighborhood where they have real problems. It's obvious to the whole neighborhood. I have not seen them since COVID hit. Wow. And we're all convinced that they are absolutely never leaving home because they're so fearful of dying. Mm. And I'd love to go over and love them, you know, mm. but mm. so anyhow, in the church, an awful lot of what we do is when the spiel, when the curating comes to a drastic halt by death, by sickness, by sin, mm. then they come to us. And the sad thing is, that they receive any counsel we give them often uh, with anger because they have been so impermeable Mm. to any humiliating circumstance in their life up until that very moment. I mean, that's why Lewis says, you know, God tries to speak to us. I don't ever like to say that God tries anything, but you know his quote. Do you know the actual quote? It's something like, you know, God whispers to us through you know lilies god talks to us through you know and then god screams to us through pain and typically with proud people who have hardened their heart against the holy spirit and are in the church and our churches are filled with such people 
we see them when all their efforts to push away anything that would cause them to be meek and humble fails. Hmm. And so that's why often pastors, I don't know how you guys feel about that, whether you think I'm right or not. Let me read the quote. He said, and this is the problem of pain. Lewis writes, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Mm -hmm. Well, Tim, as it relates to counseling, you think about the average person who has struggled with whatever they've struggled with. Um, and they have gone to, in my wife's case, she went to four different psychologists um, and she didn't find any help uh, through any of those means. But the fact of the matter is for most people, looking for a shepherd is the last possible- Why is that? Last possible resort. Why? Well. I think probably part of it is because good shepherds will tell them the truth, but I don't think that's it entirely either uh-huh. because um, when we're talking about demystifying counseling, the, the first thing that came to my mind was, well, it is just kind of mystified because there is the, the impression is there's a high level of professional, mm. there's a secret knowledge that only, uh, and there's even, even a particular kind of person who fits, who could be the best kind of, and the only kind of place I could receive help. And, you know, I'm looking at pastors and here they are sitting around the table, their stomachs are overweight and they have beards and they're not perfectly clean shaven all the time. And that guy doesn't line up with the really well-dressed, you Mm, know, um, doctor level education who sits in an office with people all day long doing this very specific thing. And so how could that guy really be any help to me Mm. until like you were saying, all the other options have run out Mm. and they're still dying. And when they're still dying, then they might be willing as a last resort to talk to someone who knows something about die a person who's dying. Hmm. I'm sorry, but that's so depressing to me. Hmm. It's so depressing. It would make me cry. Hmm. To think of God's people not loving their shepherd and trusting him as the first place they'd go if their husband hits them. Mm-hmm. If they find that their son's dealing crystal meth. If they get fired because they're an ass. I just don't understand how we've gotten to the point where we'll trust a professional psychologist and our family physician and the internet Mm. And any idiot on the internet that claims to have knowledge, mm-hmm. and we don't trust our pastors. I remember my dad saying that he died, what, almost 40 years ago. And I remember him saying that people still honor their their doctors, and they'll talk to things, to their doctors about things they will never talk to their pastors about. And he was so discouraged by that. It was Mm. such a sobering thing to him. Mm. And 
So anyhow, what you just said is very discouraging to me because, you know, you, t- you describe us having beards and everything. And, you know, I think that there's a certain kind of online shrew who would say that you could never trust a pastor who has a beard to have empathy. I think that that's the prejudice. I think anybody with a beard can't have any empathy. Hmm. You know, that's Mm -hmm. what I was sitting here thinking when you mentioned beards. But generally, beards indicate masculinity. I think the prejudice today is that pastors have no sympathy, no empathy, and certainly men have none. You know, I think Mm -hmm. that that's, and and I want to say something about that before you lead us in another direction. It is not true that pastors don't have empathy and sympathy. I mean, I tell pastors that no pastor should do anything like 20 hours a week of counseling. Never. And the reason is there is no work I've ever done. I've worked on the railroad. I've been, I've put up hay in 95 degree heat and 100% humidity. I've never done any work as hard as counseling. And the reason is in counseling, you do everything you can to bore into somebody and feel what they're feeling and think what they're thinking. And so, that's what pastors are really like. And yet the fact that we have somehow lost the trust of our own people, let alone the world, is such a sad thing to me. Mm-hmm. Well, you said earlier, love and wisdom is kind of foundational to counseling. I like it. I like that. That's a good starting point. The second half of this conversation has a lot of good stuff, including a very interesting discussion about women in counseling. So join us next week for more on demystifying counseling. Thanks so much for listening. For more great content, please visit warhornmedia.com. To support this podcast, you can donate at patreon.com slash out of our minds. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.